often this morning comes to us from, once again, from the book of Lamentations, chapter 3. I'm going to skip around a little bit through this reading, uh, through this chapter, I should say, verses 1 through 3, 22 through 33, and then 55 through 57. So that's on pages 766 through 767 of the Pew Bibles, if you want to follow along. Listen now for God's word to you. I am the one who has seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Against me alone he has turned his hand again and again all day long. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for one to hear the yoke in youth, to sit alone in silence when the Lord has imposed it. To put one's mouth to the dust, there may yet be hope. To give one's cheek to the smiter and be filled with insults. For the Lord will not reject forever. Although he causes grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve anyone. I call on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help, but give me relief. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. My, uh, my son Axel turns five at the end of this month, which is hard for me to believe. When we first showed up here a few years ago, he was not quite two yet. And when we first showed up here, he didn't really have a whole lot of words. He really didn't talk much at all. And um, there was a reason for that. He was, for most of his life at that point, a pandemic baby, they called him. Uh, he lived in COVID isolation, so he was really only ever having interactions with Heather and I, and so he didn't really need to learn how to talk. He, we could decipher the screaming and the yelling and the pointing for the snack that he wanted. Um, but then we got here, and he started going to daycare and speech therapy, and very quickly he started having words and putting those words into sentences. And because he couldn't talk for such a long time, whenever he did speak, I, I, it brought me joy, and it still brings me joy that uh, even at the end of a long day when I'm desperate for some introverted time, I still love hearing him talk. I love hearing all of his interesting thoughts about the world and how he's processing things. And I also love hearing all of his questions because he's got a lot of questions these days. He's sort of figuring the world out. Uh, he, he is really interested in how things work, especially mechanical things. And so he asked Heather the other day how engines work, how car engines work. Such a child of the Motor City, right? Um, <laughs> And so Heather pulled up some YouTube videos. I was in the kitchen cooking, and I heard them watching these videos. He's learning all about how the, the pressure causes, how there's pressure, and there's the spark plug that makes a little mini explosion that drives the piston. And it was kind of funny listening to this because Heather's like, wow, this is how an engine works. She's learning, how too, how an engine works. Um, so he's learning all of this. Um, he's also, uh, I remember back when we were potty training a couple years ago, uh, I learned more about the mechanics and the history of the toilet than I ever cared to know, because he had lots of questions um, about all of that. Um, he's also starting to get fear for the first time, not in, the, in a negative sense, but in a way of trying to keep himself safe. Um, so he's noticing all of the space heaters around the house, keeping us warm in the wintertime, and he's 
concerned about fire safety now. What's the proper safety around, around using uh, space heaters? And so uh, he, we watched some safety videos about how far away from the wall they should be and the curtains, and you should never try and dry your clothes on them. I heard all of this when I got home from Bible study one night, and I had like an impromptu fire safety lesson from Axel. It's like having a little fire inspector around the house. Um, and then he watched The Lion King again. He watched it when he was little, but he has forgotten the plot. And The Lion King, the movie, of course, has that traumatizing scene where Mufasa is killed by Scar, right? And so Axel's watching this, and he asks, does the daddy come back to life? Right in my heart, guys. And so we had to explain to him, we said, no, when you're dead, you stay dead. But then he goes, yeah, unless you're Jesus. <laughs> Guys, let me tell you, <laughs> my heart was singing. We are passing the faith on to the next generation. <laughs> Who would have thought, right? <laughs> Who would have thought that was the thing he picked up on was Jesus coming back to life on Easter? But he's got lots of questions, lots of, of things he's asking, trying to figure out the world, trying to process the world. And uh, I love questions. Questions to me are a very sacred thing. And I think as we get older, we continue to ask questions, but they become a lot deeper. They become much more existential and much more profound. And I think that if we had questions to ask, that if any one of us was given an opportunity to ask God a question, we would have a lot of big questions to ask God, wouldn't we? I think somewhere near the top of most of our lists would be that that question that every one of us has asked at some point in our lives, why is there suffering and evil in the world? Why do bad things seem to happen? And I think given the opportunity, all of us or most of us would ask some variation of that question. The truth is, is that all of us, part of being human is experiencing heartache and pain and loss. But I think the truth is, is that some of us experience that in, in much deeper and much more profound ways that asking God a variation of that question would be asking God about something that happened in your life. Why did I experience that particular loss? Why did I have to go through that thing? Where were you when this thing that left an indelible mark on my life happened to me? It's not simply an existential question for many of us. It's a deeply personal one, one about some experience that we've had. It's one of those big unanswered questions in, in, in faith. Why does suffering happen? In, in theo theological circles, we call it theodicy the, or the, the problem of evil. Um, it's kind of been in the background of the entire book of Lamentations up until this point. It's the elephant in the room, if you saw my sermon title. This problem of evil, this problem of suffering that we, we come to, we meet it in full on in Lamentations. The whole reason why somebody laments is because they've experienced some suffering, some evil, some pain has happened to them. And it's an unanswerable question. At least uh, we can sort of make some guesses and make some ways of making our way through it, but there's really no definitive answer to this question. It's one of those things that causes a lot of crises of faith, isn't it? It's one of those things that causes quite a few people to actually lose their faith or to be resistant or antagonistic towards religion in general. I remember listening to an interview from the British actor and comedian Stephen Fry, who's an outspoken atheist, and the interviewer asked him, suppose all of this is true and you meet God someday, what would you say to him, her, or it? And Stephen Fry says this. He says with a sort of, of tone of indignation and anger, he says, I'd say... Bone cancer in children? How dare you? 
How dare you create a world where there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? He says, that's what I would say with a sort of air of, of satisfaction in his response. And perhaps we can give Stephen Fry a, a moment of grace and understanding, even if at the end of the day we disagree with him, that we've probably been there too, where something has happened in our lives and it causes a crisis of faith. It causes something more than just simple doubt. But here's what's interesting to me about Stephen Fry and all these other so-called new atheists who are not that new and, frankly, not that interesting, um, is that he sounds a lot more like the people, the poets of lament we find in the Bible than perhaps he is ready to admit. That what we find in the book of Lamentations is these people who experience the worst that life can throw at them, not in some existential way, but in some, some very real, tangible way. And yet, what do they do? They, they cry out to God. They, they'd say, God, how dare you? What have we done to deserve this? We haven't done anything. And what's even more interesting to me is that these poets of lament, that when they experience suffering, when they experience evil and heartache and pain, rather than turning them away from God, it actually turns them towards God. That they run right into the arms of God. They cling to God. They hold on to the one to whom they have some very big questions to ask. And we have heard these voices already throughout the book of Lamentations. That we heard from daughter Zion in, in chapter 1 as she cried out to God, begging God, begging the world to see what she was going through. Uh, we, we heard the narrator last week, the narrator who sort of like is an on-ground correspondent telling us all about what's happening in the Babylonian siege and then its aftermath. And now we meet a third voice in the book of Lamentations, a voice that the scholar Kathleen O'Connor calls the strong man. And the strong man would have been somebody who was responsible for caring for um, all of the uh, non-combatants of the siege, the elderly, the, the women, the children, making sure that they were safe. But of course, he fails in his job, right? He, he does his best, but the Babylonian siege is just too much for him. Men, women, and children experience profound and immense suffering. And because of his failure, he then joins in the lament with the narrator and with daughter Zion. But what's interesting to me about his lament is that he seems to be struggling with what he's been taught and what is happening on the ground. That there seems to be some conflict between the theology, the ways that he has been told to think about God, the, the faith that has been passed down to him, and what he's experiencing in the real world. That there's this, this crisis, that's this rethinking that seems to be happening, this deconstructing of his beliefs about God. That Kathleen O'Connor calls him the strong man, but I prefer to call him the seminarian. The seminarian who goes to a prestigious seminary, who listens to world-renowned professors, writes papers, gets A's on them, and then he has his first day of student chaplaincy. And he, the first room he walks into is the room of somebody hooked up to every life-saving piece of equipment you could imagine, and their first question is, why is God doing this to me? That may or may not have been me. Um, and so meeting this profound suffering of the world, he has to start to rethink what God is like. 
And what this seminarian, uh, who was raised in the ancient Near East, experiences ancient Israelite ideas about God, what he would have been taught to believe about God is that God punishes people for wrongdoing. That the reason why the Babylonian siege is happening is because they've angered God, they've been disobedient. This has been in the background of Lamentations at this point. This has been the, one of the most uncomfortable things that I've, I've kind of put off talking about with you. I said, it's coming. We're going to talk about this because daughter Zion believes it. The narrator believes it. The seminarian believes that all of this is happening because they've done something that makes God angry. It reminds me of the, remember after 9-11 where Jerry Falwell got on TV and said that 9-11 happened because of this, that, and the other thing because of all of these political groups he disagreed with? Or uh, the televangelist John Hagee got on TV after Hurricane Katrina and said it happened because New Orleans is a notoriously wicked city. Uh, whenever I hear stuff like that, I'm reminded of a quote from the late Episcopal Bishop John Shelby Spong, who was no stranger to controversy in his life. He said that the church is sort of like a swimming pool. Most of the noise comes from the shallow end. Um, <laughs> And I think that's true. I think the televangelists, there's a lot of noise coming from the people who, make, who grab the sound bites, right? But maybe we can give a moment of understanding to people who hold on to those ideas because it's not like it comes out of nowhere. That we find it throughout sections of the Bible, this belief that bad things happen because we've done something to anger the Almighty. You all have heard of Job, right? Poor, poor Job, forever the poster child of God and the question of theodicy. Whenever we're having a hard time, we go and read Job and we're like, at least I don't have it as bad as him. Job, who loses everything, uh, his children, his wealth, his flocks, his home, everything. And so he's sitting lamenting all of this and his friends come to see him. And their first question to Job is, well, what did you do? And Job says, I didn't do anything. They say, come on, Job. We all know that evil and suffering only happen because you did something wrong. The universe is like is karmic, right? We gotta balance the scales. Who needs enemies when you got friends like Job's, right? Or the book of Deuteronomy, which looms large in the Old Testament. Uh, I'm sure many of you have spent lots of time reading Deuteronomy, right? <laughs> uh, we don't spend a lot of time reading Deuteronomy, but its theology is woven throughout so much of the Old Testament. And as one of my seminary professors says, theology has some of the best theology in the world and some of the worst theology in the world. It's sort of like, a, like Forrest Gump sitting on the bench. It's like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. You don't know what kind of theology you're going to get. You're going to get the, the chocolate nougat or you're going to get the one with the coconut in it, right? You don't know what you're going to get. You're going to get uh, love and care for the widow and the orphan and the stranger. Are you going to get this idea that is found in multiple places in Deuteronomy that God will punish those who do wrong, not just the people who do wrong, but their children, their grandchildren, and their great-grandchildren. I will punish the third and the fourth generation, it says in the book of Deuteronomy. And the people who sit in exile, who put together the story, put together so much of what we have as the Old Testament, one of the ways they make sense of what's happening here is by drawing from Deuteronomy's theology. And then even in the Gospels, in a couple of spots, but in the Gospel of John, we have the story of where Jesus is walking and his disciples see a man born blind. I don't know how they knew he was born blind, but um, it's the first time they met him. Um, a man born blind. Thank you, Donna. Um, <laughs> I didn't think it was that funny, but... <laughs> um, 
see a man born blind, and they whisper within earshot of this man to Jesus very loudly, who was it who sinned, his parents or himself, that caused this man to be born blind? That it seems like we carry around these ideas of, uh, of something bad happens, I must have done something wrong. That it has existed throughout the history of God's people, and it exists even into the present moment. And let me tell you from my own personal experience that this is incredibly toxic theology, harmful theology to so many people. Um, I remember when Heather and I had first started dating, I was just beginning to deconstruct my faith, being incredibly anxious that I was going to do something to make God mad at me, and God was going to run Heather off the road, cause an accident. This, these ideas are not just ancient, but they exist within our within our psyches. And they, even if, you, if you've been taught them as a child and you let them go, they kind of still exist somewhere in the background of your minds. And so we have this seminarian who, it seems to me, is beginning to process this. He sort of is oscillating wildly in this chapter. We didn't read the whole thing, but I gave you enough of a sense of how back and forth he's going, that, that God punishes, but God also blesses, that blessings and, and calamities come from God's mouth, but God's loving. So he's trying to make sense of all of this, but the puzzle pieces aren't fitting together for him anymore. That he's beginning, I think, this is the beginning stages of him deconstructing his faith, deconstructing this idea that, that what's happening in the Babylonian siege is God's anger directed at them. And I think what happens, what lament provides us the opportunity for is to cling to God, to hold on to God. But in the process, what we realize is that the God that we're holding on to is perhaps a lot different than the God that we have been taught. Or better yet, the God who's holding on to us is much more loving than we could have ever imagined God to be. That a good and loving and just God does not send the Babylonians to lay siege to a city, to men, women, and children. A good, loving, and just God does not take everything away from Job as some sort of object lesson in suffering. A good, loving, and just God does not cause a man to be born blind and while the disciples whisper loudly about him. No, God does not cause these things. I think what lament provides us an opportunity to do is to sort of deconstruct these sort of toxic ideas about God, these harmful ideas about God, and to come out on the other side with a very different picture. You know, I don't know, I don't have a definitive answer as to why God allows suffering. That should not be a surprise to you. If I did have an answer to that, I'd have a lot more money from book royalties and speaking tours. And if I did try to give you an answer as to why suffering and evil happen, I think it would be disingenuous of me. But where I do find hope and where I do place my trust is in where I believe God is in the midst of suffering. That God is not the one moving the Babylonians like pieces on a chessboard. God is not causing people to be born blind or, or whatever it is. But God is found there amidst the suffering. That God is found among those who are besieged. That God is, is found among people who have other people whisper loudly about their condition or speculate about why they, something's happening to them because of their sin or whatever it is. God is found among them. There's a, a story from Elie Wiesel that makes me stop every time I hear it. Uh, Elie Wiesel was a um, survivor of the Holocaust. He lost several members of his family in that process. And 
And in his book, Night, he details um, a story of having to watch the execution of, of two men and a boy. And they're watching the execution, and, and they, execution lingers. And finally, from behind him, someone shouts, My God, where is God? And Wiesel says, I heard a voice coming from within me saying, There is God on those gallows. That God is found wherever there is heartache and where there is pain. Uh, there's a theologian named Sally McFaig who uh, loved to play with different images and different metaphors for God and what God is like. Um, and one of the ones that I especially love was this idea that the universe or the world is God's body. And what she means by that is not that the universe and God are the same thing, but that God surrounds all things and moves through all things. And that if the universe is God's body, that means that what happens in the universe happens also to God. That wherever there is suffering, wherever there is pain and heartache, there is God experiencing it along the way. That God is found in every cancer ward, that God is found among every dust-covered mother in Gaza and every captive waiting to return home. That God is found in every situation of hospice, God is found in every, in every seat of a family member behind somebody or next to somebody in the hospital. That God is found in our prayers of lament and heartache and pain. That God is found among daughter Zion, among the narrator, among this poor seminarian trying to make sense of what has happened. God experiences the exile. God experiences the being left behind with God's people. This is where I find hope. This is where I find my trust, is that when things are hard, when life hurts, that God is there with us, surrounding us, moving through it all, that we realize that the God that we cling to, the God we hold on to, is actually holding on to us, holding us in love and in grace. Thanks be to God. Amen.